How are we doing? We're good? Thank you. It's good to see you guys. If you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 6. We're in the middle of a series uh, called Make Space. Uh, today, one year ago, I was given an invitation uh, from some elders of a church on 101 to come and preach for a few weeks in a transition. And uh, that invitation led to a few extra weeks and ultimately on our 11-year uh, celebrating uh, me, not only 10 years of getting to be a church, our 11 years coming up, 10 years of being a church, but also me getting to step in to a calling to be your pastor. And uh, yeah, yeah, and it's been an incredible journey. Uh, I remember coming in to the church and we preached straight through for about five weeks, the 23rd Psalm, and just walked through the reminder and the needed ongoing knowledge of the fact that the Lord is our shepherd. Because He is, we shall not want. He makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside still waters. He restores our souls. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil, for He is with us. His rod and His staff, they comfort us. He prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. He anoints our head with oil. Surely our cup overflows. He's that good. Surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives, and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Ever. And it was a season where I needed to be reminded that the Lord is a good shepherd. And our church needed to be reminded that God, no matter what was going to come over the next 12 months, is and was a good shepherd. And God has brought us to the point as a church of having some unique opportunities to witness and proclaim the gospel in our community. And that's what this series is about. It's about making margin and space in the growth of what God has done to be available for where God would have us go next. I would invite you to watch last week's sermon if you've not been able to check it out because there's a lot of great information this year through your giving. We've been able to give around $27,000 to local mission partners uh, both here and around the world. Still celebrating that. Yep, so, me and three people. It's great. It's all right. I get it. Uh, on top of that, we've got, uh, we've seen uh, people being baptized, people coming to faith in Christ. All that information about the growth that's put us where we're at today is there. I want to go back uh, and do something that a lot of preachers don't often do. Now, there's this weird thing that preachers believe, and that is that the entire world can be fixed with a sermon. So you don't believe that, but I, I believe we're just a few good sermons away from really turning this thing around. And uh, believe it or not, we also believe that when we preach something, you remember it. And see, what had happened was, during the service, you had other things on your mind. And uh, if there is an area of Scripture that I'm probably devoting the most of my quiet time in life to right now, it has been the Sermon on the Mount. I'm prayerfully believing that I'll be ready to teach it to you in its entirety uh, sometime in 2024. That's where we're at right now. So I'm on a two-year trajectory to try and to uh, let the Holy Spirit wrestle with me and work in me to be ready to teach you the, probably the greatest and most difficult sermon in the history of sermons ever preached. And it's this long sermon that starts in Matthew 5 and concludes down in Matthew 7 or 8. And so uh, studying this, looking at it, uh, I did a sermon 10 months ago called Heat Check Sunday. All of you remember it, I know. It was in Matthew 6, and it looked at probably one of the most difficult texts to amen if we're looking in our lives with some sort of introspection through it. 
In Matthew 6, we get a teaching on non-hypocritical Christianity. How to be Christian and not a hypocrite. And here's the problem. We're all hypocrites. In various ways and in areas of our life, if given enough time and if we were honest before God, there are parts of our life that do not line up with what the Scriptures would call us to. Can we all amen that one? Amen. Amen. Okay, good. Good, good, good to get some camaraderie in the room, right? Like we all have flaws. There's things that we ought to do that we do not do. As my granddad said, he always would tell me, do not do as I do do, but do as I tell you to do. And as a eight-year-old kid hearing that, the only thing you pay attention to when someone says doo-doo is doo-doo. To which I responded to him, uh, great-granddad, that's doo-doo. And he said, still, do as I say, not as I do-do. For a lot of us, that's the way our family's going. We're teaching our kids a faith that we do not do in various ways. It's going to require ongoing repentance that acknowledges that we are trying to live by the Spirit and not of our own will, not of our own volition, so that we can actually do as the Scriptures teach us to do. And when we fall short as a family, dad and mom are honest and open and and repentant about the fact that we don't always bat a thousand. And God doesn't expect us to bat a thousand. His grace is sufficient for us and His mercy is new every morning. So we wake up in the new mercy and grace of God and we try to submit to the work of God in our life to do better and live differently than we lived the week prior. Are you tracking with me? So in Matthew 6, we get non-hypocritical Christianity. It gives us information on how do you bless those without being a hypocrite. It gives information on how to pray and not be a hypocrite. It gives information on how to fast and not be a hypocrite. And then it talks about how to live stewarding your possessions and not being a hypocrite, which is the part that no one wants to hear preachers talk about. Because let's be honest, preachers are still sinful. And many of them have modeled for you in this text an abusive call for you to steward your resources to the glory of God, prioritizing His kingdom above everything else, to then only live themselves prioritizing their resources for earthly treasure and not kingdom gain. Which then makes you and I begin to think that we get a free pass. If pastors are sinful and they misuse resource, then we don't need to steward our resource open-handedly towards God and give Him deference and leadership over that area of our life because, you know, the church is corrupt or pastors are corrupt or someone took an extra 21 time and did something with it that we wouldn't do, that we had given, and that was our money, even though you only gave once that year. And this, this, this is kind of the wrestling match we get into. Because all of us like to magnify other people's weaknesses and over-exaggerate our strengths. While we minimize our weaknesses and in doing so play a shell game of trying to move the cards around that make us look righteous, while we make everybody else look unrighteous, when at the end of the day we're all brothers and sisters in need of constant consuming all great good grace from God in order for us to be the people that God has called us to be. So I want to teach Matthew 6 again to you because, to be honest with you, our future depends on your individual maturity as a follower of Jesus. Twelve months ago, if you go back and play the sermon, I looked at the people that were here, many of you weren't, and said, my ambition and goal for you is that wherever your relationship with Jesus is today, that in 12 months from now, it would seem like the floor of your faith, not the ceiling. I I want you to grow. I want you to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. I want him to have lordship and leadership over every area of your life. And I don't just want it for you, I want it for me. I want more of Jesus. More tomorrow than I have today, 
more trust than I have today, more faith than I have today. And the way that we get there oftentimes is through difficult places where we have idols that have rooted themselves deep in our hearts that are sucking away our allegiance from God and draining it for something else. And Matthew 6 hits right at the heart of this hard, hard text. So let's open it and look at it together as we seek to make space for what God has for us next. It says this. It starts with a negative command. Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Instead, the positive command, verse 20, store your treasures in heaven where moss and rust cannot destroy, and thieves do not break in and steal. So we're looking at a section of teaching that's about kingdom values. And it basically parallels two kingdoms. There's the kingdom that you were born into. As Lady Gaga puts it, you were born this way. Yes, sinful, in need of a Savior. That's where you were born. All of us, not some of us, everybody. Everybody in Greek means everybody. And in this kingdom, there's a set of values that they operate by, right? Like you look out for your own. You take care of you and yours. You never take handouts from anybody. And you create a set of values that usually are shaped off of some kind of weird, self-righteous pride from this kingdom that you're born into. There's a currency in this kingdom. In our country, that currency is American. Some of you are like, that's a lot of money. I know. It's for my Instagram later, so I can do what some of y'all do. Knowing that, there's like three 20s on the front and a bunch of ones on the back. But you keep going, Thunder. <laughs> working at Wendy's, but I'm a baller. Mm. Ain't nothing wrong working at Wendy's, but let's not act like you about to, you know, move in next to Master P and the St. Lunatics or something. No, 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 no. Yeah. So the, the, the text lays out, you've got kingdom currency, okay? And then you've got this new kingdom that you've been born into. And God's kingdom works upside down. In God's kingdom, according to Matthew 5, um, uh, the last will be first. In this kingdom, Ricky Bobby teaches us that if you ain't first, you're... Okay. It's only funny because it's true. Right? He goes on to continue to teach these kinds of values where it's better to go to the house of mourning than it is to the house of rejoicing because where we sit is not the pinnacle. Where we sit currently is in a season of life that's waiting on the bridegroom to come back and proclaim what's his, to, to bring his full authority on earth and over all creation. And so in some sense, mourning reminds us this isn't our home. And no matter how good God's creation on this side of eternity is, it pales in comparison for what's to come. So when we mourn, it reminds us that there's something greater ahead so we don't just get caught up in rejoicing and partying and celebrating, forgetting that there's something greater that we're to be living for with our time on this side of eternity. See, these are, these are different ideas, different values. This is what we would call the normal Christian life. But for a lot of us, it's still very abnormal. So instead, we see the text. Don't make it about the pursuit of these things, because here's the deal. There's going to come a day, soon, where you will die or Jesus will return. And you can take everything you made on this side of eternity, 
and it's not going to get you in. How much, Jesus? You didn't get it. It wasn't how much of this. It was all of me. And if it's not all of me and by my blood, this doesn't matter. Bring your gold chains. And he goes, I paved my streets on the other side of this gate with them. I don't need your chains. I don't need your gold. I don't need your money. Yet most of us lived on this side of eternity as if money was what God was after. And what he was actually after is perhaps the greatest idol of your heart. The last thing that's hanging on to you being rooted in a kingdom that is of this world instead of a kingdom that belongs on eternity in his world. So, so the idea is you can right now do one of two things and you are doing one of two things. You are either pursuing God's kingdom, which later in this text he says seek first my kingdom and all these things clothes and all that other stuff that you worry about and give your time and energy focused on, all these things will be added to you, right? But make my kingdom first, or for many of you in various ways, we seek God's kingdom sometimes, but predominantly seek this kingdom first. And it's not that it's necessarily bad. We operate in extremes. God's not trying to get you to not have a house or to have food or to put money away in a savings account or to have money for college. God's not anti you like, you know, doing well in life. He is anti your possessions possessing you. And here's what I can't do for you. I don't know what possesses your heart and makes you stutter on giving it up to God. But I know that if God were to ask you for it and you were to stutter, it's an idol. It's open-handed. So, so what, what are your idols? You see, you can get so consumed with pursuing things of this world that you just get off track. And, and it happens. It happens to a lot of us a lot of the time. Like, I love some good technology. Anybody love some good technology? Some of you are like on the, I hate technology because you've just been looking at your phone too much. But I love technology. I love the iPhone suite. You know? Because sometimes you need earbuds that had noise cancellation because you have children. And so that you don't commit sins, you put them in so that you can pray for a minute and hear the Spirit so that a demonic one doesn't come through you. Too practical? So, but this cost this, right? So those are like, you know, that's a hundred there, okay? And then you want the phone. Because, you know, everybody's got the phone so they can keep up with the social media accounts so they can not be present in the light that God actually gave them, but be present in the light that they want to portray to everybody else that they have. <laughs> That's going to cost you some money. A lot of those. Okay. On top of that, sometimes when you're on a road trip, when I was a kid, you had to, like, count cars. Yeah. Or, like, if your parents were creative... They gave you a piece of paper that had the United States, and they're like, hey, look for license tags to highlight. <laughs> Mom, why are we not finding Hawaii? <laughs> okay. Turn into a geography lesson, you know? Now it's like, just take this. Give me some peace. And every parent's used it at some point in time in their life. That's, that's going to cost, you know what it's going to cost? And more importantly than money, you know what it's really costing? Time. 
Because to go get that, I've got to give more time to get that. And if I'm giving my time to get more of that at an unhealthy measure, what begins to happen is what should be priority becomes secondary. Going to need a laptop. Because, you know, every kid in school now has to have one, apparently. My kindergartner has a pewter. She can't even say computer, but she's got one. She's got a pewter. Because we can't, we can't use paper anymore. It's driving me insane, teachers insane, everybody's insane. We've got to have it. What is it going to cost you? Money. What more than money is it going to cost you? Time. And this is where the text is going to go. Because what ends up happening is you get the stuff, but then you need a place to put the stuff. So more than likely, you've got to go and either rent or buy. Right now, you're probably renting, but, you know, like maybe you're still buying because, you know, you like 6% interest rate. And you had one of these as a model home for what your life was going to be like when you were older. (laughs) Coveting 101. We're going to have a garden tub. It's going to be awesome. Some stairs. It's going to be fabulous. So then you go to a bank, and they're like, you can afford this much house. And you don't ever think, hey, maybe we should talk to God about how much house we can actually afford before we just let a bank decide. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe he should position us in a neighborhood for mission work, and it shouldn't be about us, you know, getting our acre and oak so we can live in isolation and not have community and just be away from everybody and off missions. Instead, maybe God would have a plan that we could live on that acre so that we could, you know, buy a cow, and that cow would be like a blessing to our neighborhood. Or or maybe there's a way that we would live in a neighborhood that we wouldn't normally choose to live in, but God would have us live in because we're missionaries, I think, here to fulfill the Great Commission, not the Great Suggestion. But instead, we're just going to buy the biggest house we can buy and the most space that we can find to overextend ourselves so that we have to give more of this, earthly currency, which means we got to give more what? But the kids need it. What? My, how many of you were raised in a room with siblings? But everybody needs their own bedroom now in your house. Everybody needs a certain square footage according to OSHA. So we overextend, and having a big house is not a problem, but not going to God about what kind of house you buy, not praying about what neighborhood you would live in, and then living as if you're not a Christian or no one knowing or being surprised that you're a Christian. If I were to go knock on their door and go, hey, you know so-and-so goes to my church just down the road. You ever talk? Nope, never talked to them. Why? Because they don't have time. Because they got to pay for the iPad that's inside the house that they overextend themselves so they can then go home at night and ignore the kids and the family that are there on the devices that are keeping them distracted from the real life that they could actually live with each other because they had to have stuff. But then on top of that, like you want to get efficient with your time, which means sometimes you got to like get a space and get something that gets you from A to B a little bit quicker, which means you go to a dealership and you begin to sign on to spend lots and lots of money so that you can get more. It come in a two-by-four, not a Jeep, four-by-four is how we roll. We need the towing package. Why? So we can haul more stuff that's going to require more time so that we can't pay attention to the things that matter. And every purchase is putting us further and further off mission. Here's what we tell ourselves. 
when I get there financially, when I get there with stuff, when I get there with possessions, when I get there with the race, then I'll worship God. And it shows. It shows. You know how it shows? In the way that we give time and money to things that are kingdom focused. Because usually what happens is all the 20s and 100s are gone and the stuff may be paid for and there's a few fives and a one and we go, God, we worship you. You get that's the inverse of what we're actually called to do, right? There's God, then everything else. When God took the people of Israel out of Egypt and he made them a people of his own possession, he gave them a law. And in that law, he taught them to leave margin in their fields before they had ever harvested their first field. And in the margins of the field, it was to be there for the foreigner and the single mother and the widow and the poor so they could come by and find gleanings and corners where there was margin left in your harvest for your neighbor. You're also to leave the gleanings of the field on the ground. Why? So that as the poor and the oppressed come through, they know they're in the kingdom of God around the people of God because there's room at God's table for the poor, and the oppressed. Yet for many of us, we live on what's left instead of offering God what's first. And instead of making margin before the harvest comes in, we wait until we count the harvest before we give God anything on the back end. Now I get what you're going to say, because there are a lot of you that you've read a little bit of Bible, and you've watched enough churches misuse money to where you're like, okay, I don't give money because I'm a New Testament Christian. All right, Thunder, let's have some fun. You want to have some fun? Let's have some fun. In the book of Acts, you know what New Testament Christians did? They gave out of their poverty. They gave sacrificially to the point that it impacted their lifestyle. They gave so much that the disciples said, stop giving. So if you, here's what I want. I want you to become a New Testament giver. I want you to be so open-handed towards God that a tithe is the floor, not the ceiling. But for many of us, what we've taught is the tithe, maybe, maybe not, but it's kind of the the, it's kind of the suggestion that's written in there. It's kind of the, the goal that you know the super Christians get to, but not everybody. When in actuality, that's kind of the floor of generosity. The goal is that you will live a life that takes your possessions and it's open-handed towards God with all of it. So God, it's not my house. One of my favorite uh, people, John Wesley, was preaching. And in the middle of preaching, his house caught on fire. And a man ran down the block and said, John, your house is on fire. And John said, no, it's not. And the guy said, yes, it is. Like, literally, just saw it. Your entire house is on fire. Stop preaching and go and put it out or go and deal with this problem. He said, it's not my house. It's the Lord's house. It's his problem. I'll continue doing his work. True story. Here's amazing. Here's what happens. When you're open-handed and you understand this belongs to God and these things belong to God and what you do with them should honor God, which cuts down a lot of the time that we're on those things. And, and this is a means to honor God because 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 says, if you look at it, 1 Corinthians 10, verse uh, 31, it says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Okay, wait, wait. So some of you are like, okay, yeah, that's what I do. I get everything I want, and then I'm like the rapper at the Grammys that made an entire album about a girl's butt, and then I'm like, to, to God be the glory. That's not what the context of this text means. It doesn't mean do what you want and then just point and it works. It, it means that as you pursue it and spend time on it, do it in a way that gives God glory. As you give your life and the time that you have on this earth to get it, do it in a way that's walking in faith and not walking in your self-sufficiency. 
So if God blesses you with the house, let it be a faith story, not a you story. If God blesses you with a car, let it be a faith story and not a you story. If God blesses you with a phone, let it be a faith story and not a you story. And I get it. Like, we don't praise God every time we buy a Brussels sprout from Ingalls. But at the end of the day, the idea is that everything is a means for us to thank God and praise God and point to God as the Lord over all of our life. And what we see from the Old Testament rolling all the way up to the New Testament is the people who are possessed by God, not possessed by possessions. And as a result of it, they're the salt of the earth and the light and the darkness. They're equipped and put in position to be a blessing to those that are around them. Uh, we got any single mamas in the house? Single mamas. Let's give it up for our single mamas. Keep your hand in the air. You see... You see, whenever you're faithful to give in this church, we're enabled to be a blessing to the people that are in and outside this church. See, the point of this is not that the pastor keeps the money and carries it on, but hey, I don't know what you're going to use it for, but just, you know, we love you. We love you. And on on top of that, on top of that, no, no, you need to hear this, because I've walked with you for a while, I've heard some of the story, and we know where some some of the stuff you've gone through and where you've been. Jesus sees you. And he's provided for you, and we've praised and celebrated together how he's provided for you. The car that he gave you so that you could get to work and get here. The job that he gave you, and how that opened up an opportunity for your son to have a job. You can't spend none of that money on I'm just kidding, you can spend it on him if you want to. But he wants a sandwich. But, but God really has you. He really has you. And, and when you give faithfully, we get to be a blessing and an extension through something that's just it's just money and it's not going to matter like it's not going to matter on the other side of eternity what we do with it what it's it's a fact that we get to leverage and steward this so that god gets glory in our lives and we get to be a blessing because you're faithful in your giving to the people that god actually talks about in the bible she gave for the first time last week it was a big step of faith for her and she told me about it And the church, the church doesn't have you. What's that? <laughs> well, there's the gas money. Here. So, when, <laughs> here's my point. You, you trust God, you put him first, and then he shows up in your life as Lord and leader in ways that you've not anticipated. But if you trust your stuff, stuff can't talk. Stuff can't move. Stuff doesn't know what you're going through. It's an inanimate object. And when you give your life to it and your time and your affection to it, it can't answer the prayer. It can't move in your life. Now, a lot of us, we use different ways to like dismiss this idea of stewarding our stuff. And let me be clear. I'm not after you giving to our church per se. I am after you opening your hands over your possessions so that none of them possess you. That's the goal. Some of you are like, you just want us to give money to the church. No, I want you to give money beyond the church. I want you to get to generosity to a point where your entire finances come before God and you're like, God, you take and do with these things as you would have us do. Does that mean that we never get to have fun? Absolutely not. First Timothy, Paul commands and writes to the church in Ephesus through Timothy that they're to enjoy what God has blessed them with, that they're to praise God for what he has given them, but they're never to consume to a point that there's no room for their neighbor and there's no room to honor and prioritize God. No matter what you want to argue biblically about what you should or shouldn't give when it comes to local church, let me be very 
clear about one point. I have it at the end of my sermon. I'm going to go ahead and give it to you because I just believe it's so clear. Here's what we see through the entirety. Matthew 6 and all the other texts I could bring up about giving. We are called to steward our life. That's what this is about. This is not a giving message. It's a stewardship message. We're called to steward our life. What do we steward? Our time. We steward our talents. And we steward our resources. What are we to steward it for? For the glory of God that prioritizes God and leaves margin to consider our neighbor. That's the Christian standard. Our time, our talents, our gifts are to be utilized in a way that prioritizes God. He is preeminent. He is first. Over what? Over the house, over the stuff, over the cars, over the money, and over how we use time to get any of this stuff, and over how we use our talents and deploy them to get and give glory to something. All of it is prioritized with him being considered first. Not me first, you first. And in that prioritization of him being first, we leave margin. We see this in Deuteronomy about the corners of the field and the gleanings that come behind. In Isaiah, it says a generous man devises generous plans. Let me remind you, no one is accidentally generous. You don't live a generous life on accident through a telethon. When Hurricane Ian commercials play on football and you text to give 10 to a phone bill you didn't pay last month. Generosity is planned. Generous people go, about intention, go, go through intentional ways to make margin. And look, most generous people are not rich people. But they know what's coming in and they know what's going out. They know the condition of their flocks well, which is in the Bible, by the way, and it's what we're after. I'm not after you giving something to a church. I'm after you better stewarding your life because usually whenever you're misprioritizing money and stuff, you're misprioritizing the rest of life. Notice what the text goes on to say in Matthew chapter 6. Look at it with me. You ready to be offended a little bit more by the word of God? Everybody said? Your eye, verse 22 so we don't store up treasure on earth uh, where moth and rust destroy. We store it up in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy. And then it goes to this random text. Your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. When your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if, light, if, and, and if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep the darkness is. Okay, why the caveat? Why the, the hard turn? We're talking about possessions and now we're talking about eyes. What does that have to do with it? It has to do about the stuff. And how you see it. This isn't bad. But what you do when you look and prioritize it in the wrong way is evil. And that's what's bad. When you begin to ignore the cries of your neighbor. And those that are in need around you. Because you value stuff more than people who were created in the image of God. That's bad. And right now with your eye. You're either seeing this stuff in its right place or you've put it in God's place. Where do you get that from? Well, it's the, in the Bible. No one can serve two masters, verse 24, for you will hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to? I'm not enslaved to money. Okay. Are you constantly building debt instead of getting rid of it? 
Are you constantly sacrificing family and relationships and the worship of God to give time to get more money? There's a reason they call it MasterCard. One's master and one's subservient to the master. What does it look like when your eye prioritizes stuff over God? Your prayers are not about you actually having a relationship with God. Your prayers are about getting stuff. Any religious thing you do is about you getting what you want for the God that you actually serve. So you come to church so that you can get God to give you what you need so you can go back to worshiping what dishonors God in the life that you have outside of it. Your eyes are bad. And the American church has made a living off of calling what is dark light and what is light dark. Notice I didn't say our country. The church prioritizing selfish, man-made agendas over spirit-filled, God-led initiatives. So when it comes to being honest and forthcoming and forward about what we do and why we do what we do with what we give, we then start to close off our hands around the stuff as a church while we tell you to be generous and we ourselves continue to be selfish. How's your eye? Are you seeing God's kingdom in its preeminent position in your life and the stuff as means to bless the God you serve and those that live around you? Or are you seeing the stuff as the meaning and point of life? And and don't be quick to answer that question. I've, I've had all kinds of people come in and confess all kinds of sin in my office. I had someone tell me that he had an affair. I said, how did it happen? He said, well, I got in the bed and she was there. And I said, that's not funny. That was his real story. She was just there. I've had people make all kinds of excuses for other kinds of sins they've confessed and talked about. Never had anyone come in and say, I need to confess the sin of greed because possessions are seizing my soul in a way that's unhealthy. And I care about these things more than I should. Like, my kids spilled a milkshake and had a milkshake fight in the back seat of this, and I lost my Jesus on them. And I'm the one that gave them the milkshake with money we didn't have to spend because I didn't want to tell them no. And I really idolized the car more than I should so that I demeaned my kids and wasn't gracious in my discipline towards them, building them up towards Christ, but instead tearing them down. This is good, but it shouldn't mean that much to you. What, what, what are you seeing in the wrong way? Can I give you a few of mine? Let me give you a few of mine. I, for some reason, care about what 18 to 22-year-old football players that wear the color orange do way more than I should. It's a problem. I, I, I'm not joking right now. I pay $12 a month to read insight into what high school kids are going to do with their collegiate future and whether or not they're going to choose my university or not. There are many days where I wake up and read for 30 minutes what's on the page of that before I read my Bible or give any time to my kids. And if I get interrupted before I read that news, I get angry at my kids because that crap matters more than what really should matter in my life. I was miserable last night, not because the game was back and forth between Clemson and NC State, but because it mattered more than it should to me. And what was making me miserable was how much of a fight I was having within my own soul over whether or not God really was preeminent in this area of my life, and football was just an enjoyment, or to become something like an idol where I got my significance out of it. I mean, why am I angry when 18 to 22-year-olds underperform and they don't win a football game? And why do I feel like a loser when I didn't lose the game or contribute anything to it? 
And I get, I wore the same shirt that I wore at the beginning of the season, and I sat in the same seat, and I put my phone in the same place, and I yelled, like, advice to coaches, even though I've never coached or played football. (laughs) This is how stupid idolatry looks. You want a preacher that's honest or a preacher that lies? It's like, y'all, look for your, no, here's mine. Here's mine. My wife and I have been giving, and we give above a tithe. So a long time ago, we gave 10%, and we decided that we wanted to be leaders when it comes to generosity. I read a book by Robert Morris called The Blessed Life. It wrecked my family. At one point in time before we had kids, we got to a point where under the Spirit's leadership, we had given literally all of our savings account away under the Spirit's direction, and uh, we were living on about $1,900 a month in California. It was nuts. God provided for us in some incredible ways. It wasn't man-regulated or law-regulated giving. It was us coming to God, going, God, with our paycheck, with our resources, what would you have us do? And it was one of the most exhilarating, faith-growing, awe-inspiring seasons of my life. And I, I want this for you. I want you to experience God as your God and not money as your God and not stuff as a possession over your heart. And so here's the challenge that we want to lay to you as a faith family. We know that where we're at currently is not where we're going to be long term from a facility standpoint. We've run out of space for our kids' ministry. We've got kids busting out of the seams literally everywhere. Um, There's a lot that's happening. But in order for us to get from where we are to where we need to go... It's likely going to require good stewardship with our giving. So when you give faithfully, there is, I believe, 5% of that that immediately goes into a savings account that's set aside for what we're doing in our future development. There's 7.5% currently that's set aside for missions. I have a goal personally that we're going to get to 15% of all giving going back out the door to our mission partners within three years. It's going to take time, and we've got to move forward into getting there. On top of that, we know that we thought we were originally going to buy this building when we sold the property down the block, but instead we sold the property, we stuck it into a savings account that gets 2%. It's completely liquid and protected and safe. So we're getting some money on that, saving it for where God would have us to go in our future. And we're praying, God, where, what facility, what space would you have us be in? Because the end game goal is not to build a big church that's fancy and makes you ooh and ah. In fact, it's probably not going to be one of those you drive by and you're like, oh, mega Jesus. Instead, it's going to look like a building that has enough square footage to equip, send, and deploy the saints to go to the nations because our driving ambition is to get you from the pew into the mission field, not to stay in the pew in a comfortable building that's got great amenities. You're not going to get a walking track in the church. You're not going to get a movie theater. I'm not going to have, have a scooter that I get to drive around the church in, although that would be cool. But my, my point, though, is it will be what we need to get ministry done. That's the point. And so we're praying and saying, God, where would you have us go? And here's what we know. We currently, if the right opportunity opened up, are not bankable to move forward on that. And it deals with the fact that we, for the most part, have about 20% of those that come to this church that give consistently to it in some fashion or form. 20%. And I get it. We're in debt. It's uncomfortable now. He's talking about church giving. But this is a start towards living a generous life. You start by prioritizing the work of God. This is a great place to do it. We start by prioritizing the work of God in some way consistently. We're prayerful about it. We're joyful in the way that we give it. That's all New Testament stuff that we see. We pray. We give joyfully. We give sacrificially. And we give consistently. Why? Because the goal is that through consistent giving in our church, it'll begin to soften our heart towards our neighbor 
and we'll begin to do some fun things. There's something I want to do so bad with you. It's called the 1% Campaign. It's where I challenge you to take 1% of your income along with me, and we set it aside for our neighbor. It's the beginning of making margin in your income for the least that God brings into your life. On top of that, one of the fun things my wife and I currently are doing is we have about another percent and a half to two percent that we set aside. Morgan started working more, so it's changed our percentages, and we're having to rework through some of this right now. But we set aside a percent and a half to two percent for other organizations outside of our church that we love and want to support. There's a crisis pregnancy center that we give to that gives girls on the first visit an ultrasound so they can hear the baby's heartbeat and get the opportunity to see what their baby looks like, to understand that scientifically and from a medical standpoint, what we have evidence of is that at inception we have life. We don't want you to be deceived. We want you to know the truth. So we put our money where our mouth is at and we give out of our budget to an organization like the Bakersfield Pregnancy Center. On top of that, we give to local Christian radio. Why? Because we want you to have another option between B93 and 93.3. That will not tell you that it's about the booty, but it's about the Lord. Put our money where our mouth is. We have a kid named Prince. Did we adopt him in the uh, program because his name was Prince and he's named after one of the greatest R&B singers ever? That's my business, not yours. But all I'm going to say is purple rain purple rain every month we give a portion of our money to him he hangs his pictures on our fridge he sends us letters and writes to us about things that are going on in his world why because the kingdom of God is bigger than my country we give personally to some missionaries that we love and we support when we go on our 11-year anniversaries, one of my rules, and you're going to learn this rule on our 11-year anniversary here at this church, one of my rules is when we celebrate, everybody celebrates. So we went out to dinner for our 15-year anniversary on Friday night in downtown Asheville. And guess what we left behind for our waitress? An opportunity to celebrate because we gave her a big tip. Not a small tip, but a big one. Why? Because when we celebrate, we want others to celebrate. We make margin to be a blessing. Giving to your church is foundational and a starting point, but it is not the end. It forces you to do something that most of you don't want to do. You ready? Budget. Yeah. Most of you could give a full tithe if you budgeted many of you who are on the precipice of doing it, if you would do it in faith, you would discover what God has already written in His Word in the book of Malachi where He says, test me in this. How many of you have tested God in everything but giving? We hate that verse. Why? It's clear and practical. You don't need to go and pray on it. You just get to do it. So it works. Yes, pray. Yes, be spirit-led in your giving. But my point is, the Bible's clear. And God's not going to go back on His Word or take it back. Like, you trust God prioritize God and he will show you as you're not possessed by your possessions how to steward your possessions in a way that prioritizes his kingdom and makes an impact so we got a 90 day given challenge that we're issuing to those that call this church their home because in order for us to get to where we're going to go next we're going to have to have consistent giving that we've not had in this church in a long time so what does that mean well it looks like different steps for different people generosity for me doesn't look like generosity for you my wife and I have been on a 15 year journey of trying to outgive God and we've not won 
So you're like, you for real? Yes, we've, we've given away two cars. <laughs> I'm waiting on them to give me something insane to give away. We've not given away a house yet. Maybe that's next. Oh gosh, that would be an experience. We just moved into it. We like it. So your, your first step of what generous is for you may look different than me. So the card lays out some next steps that you could potentially take that I'd love for you to pray for and consider. One of the steps is you're giving nothing and you're just going to start giving something. Over the next 90 days, I'm going to give something. That's okay. That's a great first step. For some of you, you give erratically. Oh, I meant to give, but it seems like every Sunday you forget to. So maybe for you, it's consistent giving. I'm going to give consistently over the next 90 days. For others of you, you've never given the full tithe. 10%. I would invite you to test God and trust God and step out and try. And here's what's fun. If you do that, you you test God and you give a full tithe, and you don't see God move in your life, I'll give you every dollar back in 90 days. I'm not joking. I'm not joking. You give what God calls us to give, baseline obedience for 90 days, and you don't see God move in your life, every dollar of it will go back to you. I promise. For some of you, and this is where I would love for us to get as a church, it's my goal for all of us, is that you would give above baseline obedience. That's called offerings. That's where you're open-handed and going, God, it's all yours. So you take and do and use whatever you would have me use for your glory in any way at any time. And I, I would invite some of you to stretch in your generosity, to allow the sacrifices which you give, not just to this church, but to your neighborhood and to the neighbors that are around you in need, to impact your lifestyle there's nothing better than leveraging what won't mean anything in eternity for what will mean everything in eternity and allowing God to move in a powerful way through it you pray and you move as the Lord leads if you need prayer our prayer team is here we'd love to pray over you in this moment of response let's stand and let's sing